the opportunity to bring in great people and talent is endless. So you have to build a culture to do that. It's a mixture of honing down how do we accelerate inclusion, honing into going deeper with some of our clients, and then thinking about how do we build the culture and the structure that would sustain a, a broader operation. Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Asad Duna, founder and chief executive officer of The Unmistakables, a consultancy that works with organizations to create inside-out inclusion. Asad discusses the difference between a strategic journey and a quest, as well as sharing frameworks he's used to clarify their purpose and hone their strategy. He also talks about how he deals with the constant changes that can invalidate a strategy soon after it's created. Asad, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. You're the founder and chief executive officer of something called The Unmistakables. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about yourself and about The Unmistakables. Uh, yeah, sure. So thanks for having me on, Belden. So The Unmistakables is a equity, diversity and inclusion consultancy. So we do strategic work with organisations to embed inclusion into everything that they do. We have built that through a model called Inside Out Inclusion, a framework that we've developed that looks at the key indicators and factors that, that are needed to make inclusion thrive within any business and to help accelerate it for business growth or for organisational growth or for future sustainability. We've been running for a number of years now, work with all sorts of clients, the private sector, public sector and third sector, and have a, an interesting vantage point of what the world is doing uh, when it comes to these three letters of E, D, and I. Mm -hmm. And in that inside out framework, is there anything either you found very surprising or that your clients find very surprising? I wouldn't say surprising. I think it's the approach that's needed. So we often see that organisations try to make inclusion work through what they do outside, through marketing communications and projecting perception of diversity and inclusion. So within advertising campaigns or communications campaigns, there's conversations about how do we make this look more diverse? How do we make it look more representative? But then the real success has to come when you tie that in with what's happening within the organisation and who are the people that work for you? How do you retain them? How do you sustain them? What does the culture look like? And organisational culture right now is quite a hot topic given everything that's going on with hybrid working and this great reset, rebuild, resignation all at the same time. So I don't think people find it massively surprising, but I think they find it challenging to make all of the pieces work at the same time, because often the people who look at the marketing communications will be focused on one set. People who look at culture and internal will be focused on another set of stakeholders. So to make it all work together, that's the magic. And maybe that's the surprise, but I would say it's more of a challenge. That's a topic I'm sure worthy of a whole podcast episode in and of itself. But it sounds to me like a big part of the, the key there is you've focused not just on how do we look in a particular way, but how are we actually in a particular way? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that is a real 
challenge for everybody, I think, because what is a company culture today? What does that look and feel like? It used to be you walk into a building and you just got a sense of it. And now it's not that. And when you hear and talk to younger people about what they want and demand from work, you see changes. So you can't necessarily quantify and qualify the how are we as quickly as you can the how do we look. When we've done audits and analysis of how brands look, you can come up with data that says, well, you skew this way or you show these types of people. Here's how you need to be thinking about it differently. Uh, But how do we feel takes time to build. And I think a lot of people don't know how they feel at the moment because there's just so much change happening. Obviously, we want to talk about the unmistakable's purpose and, and its strategy. But before we get into that, when you think about purpose for an organization in general, how would you define it? What does it mean? So I think there's lots being written and talked about at the moment around purpose and is purpose a distraction? And if you look at some of the business pages at the moment, criticizing some big FMCG companies, talking about is the purpose anything beyond profit? You could start there and say, right, purpose is to make money, to sustain, to live, to do all the things you like doing. For me, purpose goes a little bit deeper, which is about what do you stand for? What do you believe in? And how do you want that to show up in the world? And so I think there's always an individual's purpose. And for me as a founder, as a business, I have the luck to translate that into an organization's purpose. And then I have the challenge of making that work with a group of people. But I think the purpose is like the soul. It's the soul of why you're there. And if you're a Simon Sinek fan, you'll know he talks about the start with the why. But I often think the why is what people's purposes are, like why they're really here, what they're here to do. Mm -hmm. Do you think, not just looking at the unmistakables, but for organisations in general, does purpose have to include some sense of whether it's environmental or social impact, something that's, you know, more about the greater good? Or can it be, no, it's really just about us? I think to be future-proof, it can't just be about us. So I think there are more people who are continually extrinsically motivated and care about the planet and the environment and what's going on to demand things from companies. Now, whether they then translate that into where they spend their money is still to be seen. So I think the pressure that I'm seeing businesses under that sit under the broader ESG, so environmental and sustainability goals, objectives, uh, is still there. But if, if you've been following any of the recent news over the last couple of weeks, particularly in the FT around ESG, there is a question of, well, does that translate and do people really move with their money or do they just say they want something and not change? I'm an optimist to hope that this is going to remain important And I think the companies that are trying to triangulate what's the profit, purpose, people, agenda, how do we stand for something that includes all of them, not just profit? They are the ones that will have more longevity, not just in what people or where people spend, but also where people want to work. So I think if people come into an organisation that's just about making money and making profit, then they might have a higher churn or might attract a sort of person um, that is not necessarily diverse or, or broad. Um, so I'd love to say yes, Belden, but I think the data still to be shown of what does this mean in practice. What I take from that is you'd certainly hope it would be that way. 
Yeah. But and sort of get a strong, I'm led by the data, or at least I pay attention to the data sense. Yeah, I pay attention to the data building. And also I think to myself, why does someone set up a business? Or why does someone start at the core and go, right, I'm going to go off and do something. And I can translate that into my story or any entrepreneur that I talk to. And I don't think the money and the profit is at the core. I don't think it's the ultimate driving factor particularly for people in my generation who have seen a previous generation just drive for wealth. I think it's a positive externality of starting something to say, right, it can create money, it can create profit. And then when it reaches a size and it has to sustain and it has shareholders, then it changes. Um, But if I just like strip it all back to the nugget of why someone does something, I'm always just a bit curious about where does money factor into that? Yeah. So coming to the unmistakables, what would you say the organization's purpose is? And and you've sort of already pointed to some extent it's your purpose, but how would you describe that? Yeah. So our purpose is really to accelerate inclusion. That's the mission that we've set ourselves. And there are blockers to that. There are people who want to slow inclusion down or are using things like the culture wars to hinder people coming together. But that does drive a lot of what we do and what we think about, what we say yes to. And then through that purpose, we then have different areas of the business that focus on different areas of our clients' businesses to help them to accelerate inclusion. On that topic of inclusion, it's good for society as a whole. The people that are maybe resisting, that are blocking, working against, is it your read that they're doing that because they see it as... For those people to be included, I'm going to have to give something up. That's how a lot of people see it. So let's do two things, Belden. Let's strip back to the definitions and then let's go into what is that about. Okay. So we talk about equity, diversity and inclusion. Equity is about how do you give everyone the conditions to thrive and be equal, which is slightly different to equality, which is you give everyone the same. Equity is slightly different. Diversity is actually lots of different people together. And then inclusion is a sense of belonging and how people are. Now, one of the biggest myths behind all of this is that equality and equity is a zero-sum game. Exactly what you said, Belden. If I get more equal, you get less equal, and therefore there's a battle at play here, or there's a war at play here. The reality is, if I get more equal, so too do you, because the tide starts to lift, and we all are able to thrive in that. Now, does that thinking match party politics? I don't think it does. And it hasn't for many, many years. But what we've got today is a way of connecting with everyone around the world that we didn't have before. So all of a sudden, we're starting to see impacts of global world events that are making us question, why aren't I as equal as I should be? And so if I give you my example of being someone of Indian diaspora in the UK, When my parents moved here, they came as economic migrants for a better life. They moved in the 70s, the 70s, 80s, 90s. They were prospering, they're doing well. Well, India was in a different place. But the only way that we had to connect was through the phone and not much more. Nowadays, I look at someone my age, maybe one of my cousins, who has a massively prosperous life in India because they're able to thrive and because the economy is doing really well. And you start to see, well, actually, as someone of diaspora here... What does my life circumstance look like? What are my outcomes that are affected by simply the colour of my skin and the heritage of my family, which is intrinsically linked to empire and linked to the UK 
history. So let's start to reassess and look at that. Now, doing that doesn't take anything away from anybody. It just allows us to relook and rethink. But I think people get very defensive very quickly and not for any bad reasons, but just because there's a news agenda, there's a political agenda that plays out. And I think there is a myth that if I get more equal, you get less, which is just not the case. So this purpose, how did you come to that? Identify it, develop it? Was it discovery or invention, if I could put it that way? I think it was a combination of the two. So we had been running for a few years, seeing what was working, what wasn't working, and landed on the fact that we were helping our clients with inclusion. In the early days, marketing campaigns that were more inclusive, communications campaigns, we then had to work out how to bottle that at a point in time where more people were joining the company, wanting to know what they were joining and what they were there for beyond a paycheck. And it's an ongoing process to keep on talking about it and keep on assessing, does it work? Where are we at? And we used a lot of the Jim Collins framework of good to great, where he talks about the hedgehog concept and what you do with that and how to distill things down into the reality. Just as a reminder for me and maybe for anybody who's not read good to great, what's the hedgehog concept? What he talked about in this book was finding the overlap between what are you deeply passionate about, what drives your economic engine, and also what can you be the best in the world at, and continually looking at those three areas. And in his book, that's how you go from a good business to a great business, because you constantly hone in on that. I wouldn't say that was invention, Belden, I would just say that was discovery. And, And anyone who knows me knows I love a framework. So any frameworks that I can apply, go, how does that work? How does that look? That helped. And that's where we got to. It sounds like you sort of got started as a bit of a marketing, branding Mm. focused organization. And as you got involved in that, you began to realize it's more than just one of the faces we put in our ads. It was this deeper inside thing. Where and when and how did that come about? I think it came through two different routes. So one was... I remember being in a marketing agency beforehand. I had a career in marketing and communications, feeling like I didn't belong there. So I was experiencing cultures where I I thought, I don't really fit here. So that was my lived experience. And we talk a lot, Belden, about combining lived experience with professional experience. So the professional experience was as we were talking to clients to say, well, how do we accelerate inclusion beyond showing who's in the advert? And it was, well, we've got challenges internally for who we're recruiting. We've got challenges for who stays. Our senior leadership team doesn't look diverse and reflective of who we serve. So it was ongoing. And my model of innovation that I like is it's always applied. I think if you try to innovate in a bubble, then that can work on certain things. But the more you can apply it, the better. So we were talking to clients day in, day out of where are the barriers How can we help you unlock it? And more often than not, when we were talking to very senior leaders, they were able to say, well, my marketer is thinking about this and my people person is thinking about that. And then something clicked to say, okay, let's develop our framework around that. And we know it works, so we know it's sticking, but it just came from continual conversations with customers. Mm -hmm. How long was it from the time when you first started thinking, this is great what we're hearing from the clients, but somehow what we're doing doesn't quite scratch that itch to having it bottled, to feeling like, yeah, this is now 
it we're clear and we know where we're going on it if i cast my mind back it took about two years yeah so it really was a kind of process of thinking and trying and yeah i think lots of people when they see a business will say oh how did you get that like as you say was it just an invention you went ha here it is and it's never that it's constant trying and testing and many years ago Belden, and i worked for a tech startup called triptees and i worked with a brilliant founder called charlie osmond and his brother james at a time where the business was pivoting and moving around and charlie said to me the two ways to find the root are what's the biggest problem you can solve for a really small number of people or what's a really small problem you can solve for lots of different people and then you have to constantly be digging and saying, well, how do we do this and which one is it? And that company, when I started, was a B2C company and then pivoted to B2B. And then that's where the click happened. But the two, three years that Charlie was spent toiling away with very little revenue coming in is unseen. Yeah, no, it's it's the overnight success. And it's, no, it's never an overnight success. Yes. Absolutely. In that work that you were doing, over those two years, was it all sort of you and your clients kind of in the conversation together? Or did you bring in any kind of external help, support, paid or unpaid? Yeah, so we brought in a few people. We had a couple of junior people working for us. I I brought in uh, someone called Ben Brooks-Dutton, who also came in to help look at things from a Marcom's lens. So we did. and, And through that, it was that kind of cluster of people wanting to do something about diversity and inclusion. So we were all quite driven by that lived experience. So mine, Ben was driven by the experience of his mixed race son who went into his office in his previous company and said, where are all the black people? So that was driving Ben to create change. I had someone called Chris who was very driven just having left university. So as we brought people in, they all kind of had this vision of creating better inclusion. I don't think it can be done on your own. This sort of sole founder coming up with the aha moment is never the case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what would you say your strategy is? So if we come back to the accelerating inclusion, and that's what's driving us, our strategy now is to think about how can we reach as many people as possible through that So talking to our clients and thinking about how do we get closer, deeper relationships with some of our clients to help them across their business. And then also, what does this look like on a national scale, on a global scale? Because inclusion can often be swayed by where someone lives. So if someone lives in London or in a big city that has a higher demographic of, say, uh, ethnically diverse people, they might think diversity and inclusion is one thing. But as a broader topic, it's different. So really thinking about how do we do that? What does that look like? Because it does change the operational side of making the company work. I I can give you an example. It used to be this idea, you open up an office, people will come to it, job done. Now, the opportunity to bring in great people and talent is endless. So you have to build a culture to do that. It's a mixture of honing down, how do we accelerate inclusion, honing into going deeper with some of our clients and then thinking about how do we build the culture and the structure that would sustain a a broader operation. Right. So this idea of, you know, sort of wanting to make sure you can affect things for as many people as possible would sound to me like, therefore, you'd be wanting to work with really big organizations. 
Is that the case? Yeah, that's where we're doing more work with bigger organisations that are requiring us to go deeper into their organisation, do diagnostics, audits, to think about where can we affect change across the company and then across the regions that they work in. And that comes with, again, opportunities, challenges. Sure. And are those bigger companies, do they tend to still be sort of UK-based or does that take you into actually we're working with them around where they are everywhere around the world? Yeah, it's really where they are everywhere around the world. So we're going to a client event in the south of France in a few weeks to look at and explore inclusion there as part of work that we've been doing for a year or so now. And then we've got clients where we're working across countries like Turkey, countries more in Central and Eastern Europe. So again, because we're seeing the change in diversity and inclusion globally, that's really exciting for us to think about, well, what does inclusion look like in Germany, for example? So I I used to live in Germany, I studied it as part of my degree, and actually the conditions for inclusion are so different because some of the cultural and societal conditions around immigration were very different. So how do you then create inclusion in a business context that is quite hierarchical, that has very different city dynamics that play through, that has a different attachment to diaspora that the UK does, for example. So going deeper with clients and then affecting them globally, it's hugely exciting in where we can then affect change and what we can do next. Mm, mm. And then it also sounded like you were wanting somehow to affect things at a sort of national stroke political level. Does that sort of take you into lobbying policy think tankery or is it no 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 we're going to work with our clients or is it something else i think it's a bit of a tension because in our business we've got so many activists who want to create change so there is that point of well what do we lobby and what do we do now what we do with that belden is harness that into what we put out into the world So last year, we put out a research report called the Diversity and Confusion Research Report, because what we found was that people were more confused about diversity and inclusion. So we use that ability to create, as you just smiled and kind of laughed around it, we use that to say, well, how do you affect it? And we put things out there like 40% of people in the UK are scared to say the word black, 51% of people are scared to say the word queer in the workplace. What do you do about that? Now, if you went and spoke to a communications or PR agency, they might say, well, that is lobbying in some respect because you're trying to change how people think. And even a couple of years ago, we put out some thinking around the term BAME, so Black, Asian and and Minority Ethnicity. And we were calling for BAME to no longer be used. But as a small business, we were just saying that because that's what we believed. And then lo and behold, a year and a half later, it no longer is used. Now, I'm not saying that we affected that in a huge way, but we put something out there to get people thinking. That's the tension in our business, which is what can we go out there and change and how do we affect it through our clients? And the two work together and there's always a fine line between the two. I think I just look at it and say to myself, if we can make conversations around EDI redundant and make ourselves redundant in the process, then we've done what we set out to do, which was to help people feel more included and to thrive. The ways we go to that are multifold. Yeah. One of the things I'm particularly interested in is how organisations, businesses and others 
can come together collaboratively to affect what I call wicked problems. You know, these interrelated, very hard to define, people can't even agree on what the solution might even look like, much less how do you get there? So I'm just curious, are you consciously trying to do that? And if so, how? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in that network effect that you're talking about and how, especially when you're a small business, how do you create a disproportionate effect? So there's two ways through which we have seen this and are doing this. So one is we built up a network of culture makers, people who are out there doing work in the field of diversity and inclusion, could be journalists, writers, activists, lobbyists, who we bring in to talk to our clients about Uh, the work that they're doing and to get our clients to think differently. So we see that that works because we're able to harness their thinking and difference and then our clients are able to grow and then they form bonds and business together that then accelerates inclusion. And then the other way is through finding through that network often people who are creating great change that we aren't doing as a primary but collectively we could do something together. So one example is someone called Ed Warner, who runs a company called MotionSpot. Now, what MotionSpot do is help to create more accessible buildings and the physical environments that can help people. And in talking to Ed, what I find amazing is he doesn't just do that through the lens of disability, for example. He looks at ageing. Ageing populations are a global phenomenon we're going to need to look at. How do you make homes that are more sustainable? People aren't necessarily retiring and downsizing. They need homes to adapt. So his whole business is about that. So when you pair his mission and the Motion Spot mission of creating the spaces that are inclusive and accessible with our ethos to create the environments and cultures that are inclusive, then there's a disproportionate positive effect that can happen. I've certainly found that really energising as well, because when you're a small boat in a big ocean, it's good to have a few people flanking around you who are heading in the same direction, who can give you sight of a tailwind. I like that. Um, So if I'm going to write the way you kind of came to your purpose, it may have been latently there in you and in others, but there was this couple of years long process of engaging with clients, trying things out, hearing from them what their issues were, and then at some stage going, this seems to be working, but how do we bottle it? How did you go about developing your strategy? A few ways. Um, I think as a founder entrepreneur, you often think you're just on your own to do that, and you've got to sit in a dark room and go, aha. So I've gone through a few different ways. I I mentioned like books, so I, I take a lot of frameworks and structures so put that into the mixing bowl talking to clients and saying well where are they at being really close to the customer is really important then working with my team and I built a leadership team over the last year and a half or so who have different specialisms and areas to say what what are we trying to do and where are we trying to get to our strategy is constantly adapting because in the last two years I think if you had a strategy two years ago it would be obsolete by now And therefore, what can we look at that looks at six months, 12 months, 18 months? How do we iterate? Uh, Where do we need to focus? What does that need to look like? For this year, the strategy was very much around the tail end of last year. Where do we want to head? What does that look like? We're approaching half a year now. What are the adjustments that we want to make? Where do we want to go? But all of it keeps pulling back up to accelerating inclusion. So I'm sat here in my room going, 
okay, is the world slowing down in some way? Many companies have seen this. You've seen the reports. Netflix is growing slower than it was during the pandemic. That can then become the overriding narrative. We're pulling back and looking at that and saying, what does acceleration look like today? And then we're also looking at the global factors of how people are working, what cultures are looking like. So I couldn't say to you, here is the playbook for how you develop a business strategy. There's a combination of, I think, frameworks, history of what we do, people, and then me ultimately saying, okay, this is the direction I want us to head in. And how do we get everyone energized and excited by that? Often in businesses, my experience has been strategy as a term has this big halo and this big, aha, one day we will land on a strategy and some, you know, very clever people will sit in a room with some flip charts and aha, that's it. And that can work. I, I do not doubt that can work. I think at this moment in time, with everything that's going on with the world, it has to be somewhat looser than that, because the world is changing so much. So just as people came out of two years of lockdown, then the world went into a war. And then just as the world's going through that war, we're about to hit a recession. And so any person who sits there and says, I've got a five year strategy and a plan isn't able to ride with the tide. And if I pull it back to EDI as a topic, one of the things I'm talking to our managing director, Simone, about is what is the analogy that we use to talk about where we're going? And I think people can talk about EDI as a journey. And a journey implies you've got a sense of where you're going, but you also know the destination because a journey goes from A to B, right? Now, I was listening to Mo Gowda, who I think still works at Google and has written a few books. And he said, life can often be seen as a journey, but actually it's more of a quest, which is a sense that you're going somewhere and you're trying to create change, but you might not know the end. And I think EDI is the same sort of thing. It's a quest. There's a quest for inclusion. There's a quest for a better world for people, whether it's for yourself or for your children or for the next generation. And you have to be aligned to go, that's what we all want. But the ways you get there are going to be vastly different. Just kind of two comments when you say, one is, I think what I hear and what you're saying, and I absolutely agree with is that what people think a strategy is maybe needs a bit of a rethink. And the other one is a big shift I see in the way a lot of people are approaching strategy is not that small group going off somewhere, but a much more inclusive, both internally and externally inclusive process. And I hear you saying, to some extent, you did the same. Yeah, we we did the same and we continue to do that. So if if someone says to me, well, you know, what's our strategy for recruiting and retaining Generation Z? The only way to do that is to talk to Generation Z who want to affect change, to go on TikTok, onto the platforms and hear what people are saying and what they're commenting on. So if you boil that down, you might say, well, our strategy comes from reading a few comments on TikTok that express how people feel about work and then from there we might pull back and say well what do we do differently as a result which is an iterative process because that world is moving so fast so if you think of this journey as you've been refining your purposes and as you've been iterating your strategy what surprised you along the way in that journey i wouldn't say surprise belden i would say that some things have been reaffirmed to me and some things have caught me off guard 
So one of the books I read was a book called The Entrepreneur Revolution. That is by Daniel Priestley. And he says there's three things you need to set up and run a business. Luck, vitality and reputation. So luck, can't control that. Vitality, bring as much energy as you can into any interaction. And reputation, you know, leave a good trail when you've left the room. And that's been reaffirmed to me that the vitality and reputation you can do something about. But the luck part, no one can tell you that. And I'm quite a spiritual person, Belden. So those would be the moments where I've gone, okay, greater being, something happening beyond me. Um, The things that have caught me off guard is just how much the world of work has changed. And what's the impact been on the organisation of clarifying the purpose, this ongoing process of kind of continuing to sense where the direction is? It's given an anchor. It's given an anchor to say, this is what we stand for. And do I want it in or not? That's the first thing. And then what does this mean? And it gives us a place to come back to, whether it's about new potential clients that want to work for us, about work that's in motion, whether it's people we're hiring, gives you something to come back to and say, well, do they believe in that? I get two senses out of what you're saying. One is distinguishes you from other places they might work. But it also gives a sense of stability, of continuity, of being able to make sense of it all in the midst of perhaps everything else swirling around around you. Yeah. And and sometimes, Belden, it gives a sense of, okay, are we heading in the right direction? Do we need to lift the anchor, move over there? It gives a grounding point. And what I see, and this is from my comms background, it's repetition. So you have to keep saying, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, this is where we're going. Because then in the micro detail of a project or the micro detail of an interaction, you might forget what it's about, particularly as people are remote and they're not in a room together and can see something on a wall or talk to a colleague. It's just given that anchor. I'm not going to sit here and go, we're perfect and I'm presenting it as perfect, but we're learning what it can do. Yeah. And... When you reflect on who you are as a person, is there more you'd like to have in either your strategy or your purpose? For me as an individual, always, because humans work in deficit and negativity bias. So I'm always thinking, well, there's probably more that I can do. I think in terms of my strategy, I think it's that bit that you said about surprise. It's dealing with a bit of that because I know I can be a control freak. And so when everything is awash, it's like, how do I grab on and and deal with that? And my spirituality definitely helps with that. And then in terms of my purpose, I think I'm going to take a lot away from this conversation to say, well, what does that look like? How many people could we really reach? Like what I love about like Mo Gowda is he said, I want to reach this many. It was either million or billion people with the concept of happiness. Every single decision goes through that lens. Sometimes you make good ones, sometimes you make bad ones, but it's just that driving So it's kind of maybe even further honing to say, where do we go? And, and, you know, my team has challenged me to say, right, you know, what now? Where next? They're looking up to me to go, tell me that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to just percolate and sit and think about this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, What advice would you give to a leader, a business leader, a leader of an organization that was wrestling with their own organization's purpose and how to connect it with their strategy? The advice I would give is what happens on the micro impacts the macro. So I have a sense at the moment that 
everybody is going through a reassessment of what is their purpose and why are they here. And then if you bubble that up into a business, you've then got loads of atoms shaking around. So if you're a leader of that, it's spending time to understand that of what people want, where they're going. And then through that period of listening, then decide where to go. Mm -hmm. And then also assessing what can we really give and what can't we give? So when I talk to mainstream brands and businesses that say, we want to be more diverse and inclusive, X, Y, Z, reason why. But if you look at mainstream society and who you sell to, they don't want you to be that yet. So you have to make a decision of whether you're going to lose some people as your customers, gain some others. Those are hard decisions. But don't just do it on an assumption that everyone will follow you because they won't. So go through a period of listening and then work out where are my priorities and then just don't do it alone. Any leader that I'm sat talking to at the moment, I think feels quite alone because of the way of working at the moment. So listen and then work out the direction from that. That's the leader's challenge. And then don't be alone in making some decisions and shared accountability for those. I'd love to have had twice as much time because I think we've got a lot we still could cover. But let me say thank you for joining us on The Purposeful Strategist. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Likewise. Thanks so much, Bernard. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available at www.mancus.com, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. However, we are taking a short break over the summer and will return in September. September.